0: Well, Charles, welcome uh, to the Salem Center for Policy. Glad to have you here today to talk about uh, free banking, crypto, and whatever else comes to mind. Great, great to be here. Great, and join with uh, Cesare Fikazi. Uh Cesare, thanks for uh, helping run this interview. And I'm Scott Bogus. Uh So, Charles, I just want to start. You're you're an economic historian at Columbia University. Um, can you just tell us like how you chose that path and mm-hmm. how you arrived at being an economic historian and the research that you do?
1: Well, I wasn't hired by Columbia to be an economic historian. I was hired to be a finance professor. But what's interesting is that I came from initially a training uh, in economic history and macroeconomics, and then kind of gravitated toward finance. Um, and I think you're right that I still think of myself as a, fin- uh, a financial historian as well as a finance professor. In fact, I just got a, an article uh, published in the Journal of Economic History. So. Um, I, I, I think the way it happened for me, if I'm going to give it like one sentence, is just to say, back in the early 1990s, if you were looking for a way to um, have opportunities to teach classes in which the importance of institutions was emphasized, finance in business schools was the place. And that it might seem a little strange, but it's absolutely true, and because... Uh, the business school students needed to solve practical problems. And to solve practical problems, they needed to come to grips with this question of what is the institutional framework within which you're doing business? And so that's the natural connection. And if you look at, you know, like uh, Daniel Raff at the Wharton uh, School is another example of somebody who I think has brought that same sort of formula to uh, the success in uh, teaching at, at Wharton. Actually, it's a very natural connection. Dan, not in finance, though. So it's worked well, uh, especially if you're focusing on financial institutions, central banking, uh, emerging markets. So those are the things I focus on. Um, Financial institutions are an institution. They're regulated. It matters uh, how, how they're regulated. Central banks are institutions. They've evolved over time. They're continuing to evolve. And how do countries go from clusters, from what is financial development? It's... It's tied in with economic and political development, and it really is defined by is moving from a cluster of bad institutions, which is lack of rule of law, lack of democracy, um, lack of protection of creditors, all these things are kind of tied up to each other, to moving to a set of institutions where they all work better. And so how does that happen? How do those transitions occur? What are the circumstances? Those ultimately are historical questions, but they're also... At the core of, if you're running a portfolio right now and you're measuring country risk and trying to decide, do I think Brazil's in good shape right now? What do I think about India? How do you answer that question, if not with historical understanding of institutions?
0: So can we just start with the U.S. and the history of the U.S.? Mm -hmm. One of the things we want to talk to you about is money, the past money, future of money, and all the way up to fintech. So can we start with that development of the U.S.? And how far back can you go to explain to us... Banking and money in the U.S.? Oh, well,
1: gosh, that is a dangerous thing to ask (laughs) me. Okay, so the first thing to to tell people is, did you know that the U.S. in the Western world basically invented government-issued paper money? And it did that during the colonial period. So that's kind of interesting. Why did it do that? Well, because it was an impecunious place. There wasn't a lot of capital. There wasn't a lot of wealth. They didn't want to spend all of their uh, imports that they could bring in on importing specie. And they also had to finance wars against the French and the Indians. There were So there were lots of constraints that led to this creative kind of monetary innovation. And Ben Franklin in 1738 at the age of 23 wrote a wonderful pamphlet about how you can relax these constraints and spur development by making intelligent use of paper money. By the way, John Law, famously in Scotland, had been writing about this in around 1700, then went to France and, of course, caused the Mississippi bubble and got himself thrown out because he went too far. But all of this kind of thinking starts around, you know, in the late 1600s as ways to try to relax some constraints that have to do with reliance on species. So the, the U.S. was at the core of that. You could even say that the restrictions coming from Britain on the establishment of banking in the colonies were on very much on the list of reasons for the revolution. It wouldn't by itself have caused the revolution, but it was one. So the U.S. is there. And then you sort of, now we fight the revolution, we are now nationally impoverished. The revolution was not a, a, a favorable moment from the standpoint of the economy, it was very destructive to the middle class. Uh, destructive of the finances all the governments with the exception of Virginia pretty much were bankrupt and then you have Alexander Hamilton coming in and establishing what is going to be the institutional foundations of a sound currency and a huge like intellect brought to bear on this question it comes up with all those dimensions that other countries copy by the way so the Bank of Montreal in Canada that charter is a copy of Hamilton's first charter for the Bank of the United States so his understanding of kind of how do we create financial stability, what are the dimensions of that? So the U.S. has always uh, been playing this role.
0: So my understanding is Alexander Hamilton uh, created the first bank charter to assume the debt of all the states That's to right. pay for the war and is, was a
1: social fabric create cohesion amongst the states to be like a unity. That's correct. And the deal, of course, with Virginia was that Virginia, which had already paid its debts, because it was the, Virginians were where all the wealth was because of tobacco mainly. And so because all the wealth was in Virginia and they had paid their debts, the Virginians didn't really like the idea of assumption of all the debt. What? How did Hamilton convince them to go along with it? By locating the capital in Virginia, which is now Washington, D.C., separate from Virginia. But that's, you know, so it's it's always about, you know, money and banking is always about political deal-making. It's always about dealing with political constraints. If you think about economics and you think you can think about it without reference to political events, wars, other things, the whole history of banking cannot be separated from the history of war. It's absolutely, the Bank of England was created in 1694 to deal with the, war, the wars that had just started with the French. And this is something that people don't, aren't aware of. They think of this as a very advanced economy from a financial standpoint. England and Wales had no other chartered bank until 1825. It was a financially repressed economy in which the Bank of England's job, its main job, was to provide for the sovereign during the war with France, and that war didn't end until 1815. And then about a decade later, uh, the Bank of England's monopoly was gone. So it's like it's all about dealing with uh, wars. So we have
0: banks because of wars, Pretty and much. after the Revolutionary War, we didn't have a war for a long time. Can you explain the state of uh, money in the U.S. and we think of a uh, single currency yeah. today? But what was it like, you know,
1: following the Revolutionary War up until our next big war? So you you had a bunch of different um, views in, in the Constitution about what the right allocation of power over money and banking would be. And it wasn't made clear by the Constitution. In fact, you know, if you think about the Constitution, there were, if, and read the notes of the people who, while they who were attending it, there were some things that were intentionally left vague because they couldn't reach agreement on it. Money was one of them. Uh, so it isn't clear that the U.S. government has the right to create a legal tender currency based on the Constitution. That's not an accent. They all discussed whether to to make that constitutionally clear. And the winning sort of, there were three different views, and the winning view was kind of, what we could all agree to do was to not try to resolve it. And then the next time that it came up was the War of 1812, when in fighting that war, uh, the government got into trouble. I mean, the U.S. government... You know, yields were in, you know, beyond double digits. I think the face value of the government debt was down to about 30 cents on the dollar at the time of the Battle of New Orleans, uh, which is sort of toward the end of the war. And so how did they solve that problem? You can guess. They issued bills. Now, they didn't test the constitutional question by making them a legal tender in the formal legal sense. But what they did was they made them receivable for payment of taxes at par with hard currency. The value of those bills went, that made them a legal tender for public And what was the hard currency? Uh, Silver or gold, right? So by doing that, you basically, so what what then happened was the value of those things stayed at like 100 cents on the dollar. All the other government debts were effectively subordinated. But that was what allowed the government to to pay. So they had had the experience of the revolution where they'd used paper currency to deal with short-term constraints. They'd had the War of 1812. And when the Civil War came, it was a completely different story. The problem there, and this would take us a long time to tell the full story, but the government had done a very ambitious debt raising and placed all of its debt into the banks in the fall of 1861. And then in December 1861, the government treasury announced that it it saw big expenditures, a long-duration war, which was not expected previously to that, and they weren't interested in doing any taxation. So all the debt they just put in the banks fell in value dramatically. The banks all were insolvent. The banks all suspended convertibility. The reason legal tender currency was created in the United States was to bail out those banks, so that their deposits would now be denominated in something that was as cheap as the paper that they held in the asset side.
2: So we uh, I- over the last 10 years, we've seen uh the growth of uh, new private money with, with cryptos and stable stablecoins. Mm-hmm. Uh, what lessons have we learned from the free banking area that you can apply to, uh, to today's uh, scenario?
1: Okay, so free banking, in the, which was very popular in the 1830s and the 1840s, was pretty much state-level banks initially, which were free in the sense of there was a general incorporation rule, and they were, So licensing was free pretty much if you could meet the requirements of the law rather than having to get special permission from the state legislatures. So that's the definition of free banking. That becomes copied by the national banking system in 1863, that same model. But now instead of the requirement being that you have to hold state government bonds, you have to hold federal government bonds, which of course suited the war effort very nicely. So the Civil War gave us both the legal tender Resolved the legal tender question probably wasn't really constitutional. Um, by the way, they packed the Supreme Court to make sure that it was viewed as constitutional. Grant, President Grant did that. And it also gave us free banking applied at the national level in terms of a general incorporation law with clear rules that allowed anyone to become a bank. So that, this, the Civil War was kind of defining in, in terms of that. So what did we learn? I think we learned that this is a much better way to run a banking system, first of all, from the free banking era. We learned that instead of giving special privileges to a few people, that it was better to have free entry and competition. Although back then it was still limited because the comptroller decided that national banks couldn't branch throughout the country. Yeah. And so that limited the, 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 the competition. There were a lot of things that weren't ideal about it. Um, Free banking prior to that had been uh, where the banks were issuing their own individual notes. And so those notes sometimes defaulted. They were traded at discounts. Um, Some people really disliked that system as cumbersome. And actually, that was also the reason why in the national banking system, the bank notes were backed initially 111% by U.S. government bonds deposited at the U.S. Treasury. So there was no way that your note could be worth less than uh, a dollar until they did the suspension of convertibility. Uh, You know, that, that, that Civil War measure that I described, the bailout of the banks, kind of complicated that. But ultimately, the national banking law was intended to not have this kind of confusion of many currencies with different discount rates. Overall, I think finance... Uh, Literature has said that the free banking era was successful in the sense that the banks managed risk because they were disciplined by note holders and depositors. Those market discount rates uh, rewarded low-risk bank operations. I've done a lot of work showing that Mm -hmm. myself. Um, But you could still say that it wasn't ultimately a great system because all these exchange rates were quite confusing to people. And so Andrew Jackson hated it. Because he thought that the exchange rates of the of the boats uh, of the notes were a form of taking advantage of the common man, you know, because it was too confusing, right?
0: If they had computers and distributed distributed ledger technology,
1: would have well, been different. So that's a good question. I, I think the point is, if you, yeah, if if you're working in this area and you can manage those kinds of uncertainties. I think, you know, I have no problem with it. But I do want to say, you know, like if you look at the the kind of ICO bubble in cryptocurrencies in 2017, 2018, um, I was at that time uh, involved in a cryptocurrency very briefly. And I won't go into that because it wouldn't be appropriate to talk about, you know, specifically what, what I was doing there, except to say that I thought that the market was wrong and that the People, their, their people were too easy in putting their money down for things that didn't make sense, business models that really didn't make sense. And there were conversations I was involved in where people were saying, look, we've got people who will give us $100 million to do something you're telling us makes no sense. And I said, but let's just like do the math here. Uh, this doesn't make sense. Well, but they're going to give us a hundred million dollars. I said, "Yeah." Well, what will the SEC decide? Will they decide that we've committed fraud by taking it because this, you know?
0: So it's so a good it's a good analogy the dot com era because a lot of money was put into enterprises that didn't make a lot of sense, but the underlying.
1: Technology, the internet—everybody yes. kind of knew it was going to work. Absolutely, but and that's the way it is. You know, I mean, there's exuberance in markets. There are new things. It's hard to calculate the risk. But I think what what was shocking to me, though, I have to say, as a you know free markets uh, advocate, and I very much am a free market advocate, but not not saying that without any regulation. But I, you know, I have a lot of faith in the market. But I was actually quite shocked at how much money people were willing to put out for bad business models. And I don't know if you remember this one business model. What was it called? Um, And, you know, John Taylor and uh, Kevin uh, Warsh were both involved in it. And it ended up that they gave $150 million back to the investors and withdrew. And I think the reason they did it was, it was around this same time, that I don't think the business model was great. And I think that they were probably wondering whether if everything collapsed, whether they all might... I I never had a conversation with any of them, I don't know. But I'm just saying my interpretation was that even though they could have taken that money, that it might not have worked out very well. And it might have been that they would have been found legally liable somehow, even though they weren't doing anything fraudulent. They told people what their model was. So it, it was kind of a Wild West time there, 2017, 2018. I think where we are now is different, where... Stable coins are, in my opinion, the future technology, it's, um, and that we know how to design algorithms that can deliver stable coins very well, and I think that they're, they've been growing very rapidly. By the way, the growth of stable coins- Is it the,
0: is it the future technology, or is it the
1: first real technology mm-hmm. that's come from uh, crypto assets? I think it's the first technology that can create a viable payment system. And here, here's it's it's really simple. Like none of this stuff that's that's real in finance is ever very complicated. You can get people. Can I quote called, you on that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you, you can get people. Like if if I uh, have relatives in Venezuela and I need to get money to them, I'm going to use Bitcoin because all I have to do is get into Bitcoin for ten minutes. Send it to them. They're in for 10 minutes. Yes, there's some very short-term exchange rate risk, but we can do um, a a repatriation to Venezuela of money pretty effectively through Bitcoin. But I'm not holding high average balances. I'm not putting my checking account into Bitcoin. People don't want to hold thousands of dollars indefinitely in something that's going crazy like that. That's not a payment system. That's a acute innovation that solves a particular problem, but that is mainly held, if it's held over any significant period of time, it's by speculative people and maybe not very smart people too, I would say.
0: Is that because it's untethered to yeah. any ability to convert into a good? Yeah. It, it's,
1: it's, So here, here's the thing. Some people have a hard time understanding how Bitcoin can have any value. Some people have a hard time understanding why Bitcoin is going to collapse because both can be understood in finance. So, as the first mover and having set up a network that can achieve things like that Venezuelan transaction, it has value even though it has no intrinsic value because it it has scarcity value for because it's a first mover. But that's going to go away once the stablecoin network comes into play because it's a better network to achieve the same kinds of transactions but to also be able to do it in a stable way. So, Bitcoin should be understood as something that could have value because it was a first mover, even though it didn't have intrinsic value.
0: Can I I challenge that in just a a, a small way? Uh, So let's assume Amazon tomorrow decided to accept Bitcoin for everything that it sells. At what
1: parity? At parity with the dollar? Let's assume they
0: have an initial condition and then they just let the market figure out what the right prices are. I'm assuming if you have a very large
1: volume of goods that you can purchase, you would reach some equilibrium. It, it depends on whether they established a parity. And I don't think they're going to because they couldn't, they'd, they'd, they'd end up losing a lot of money. So, I, I, no, I don't think it would. I think if, if, if a big enough player out there said, we've decided to put a floor on the price of Bitcoin by saying that we'll take Bitcoin instead of dollars at parity, that would affect the price of Bitcoin. But if all you said is, hey, I'll accept Bitcoin, but at the exchange rate, what if you of let, what if you let market, each
0: vendor on Amazon? Decide what that parity is. Like they can. They can I don't think it would. It I, would work.
1: I, I don't think acceptance of Bitcoin as a, a, a transacting medium will lead Bitcoin to ultimately survive. Bitcoin is going to go away. It's going. Its value will be zero within a decade. Now, you know, strong prediction. And the, but it'll happen faster if the regulators don't try to stop stablecoin.
2: So do you include uh, central bank digital currencies
1: into stablecoins? No. S- central bank digital currencies are the evil Darth Vader okay. idea that's trying to provide a uh, like excuse for not allowing stablecoins to come into existence. So if you currently if you're a central bank and you're a power-hungry kind of Darth Vader character, that that's a good portrayal of the Fed, let's say. Mm-hmm. Central bank digital currency does some great things. It allows you to say that you're doing something very progressive while you're preventing, buying into the, the prevention of the innovation stablecoin. stablecoins. Stablecoins are a much better transacting system than central bank currency. Why? Um, because blockchain um, is not hackable. It's bilateral, so it's more stable actually as a, as a way to, a system to set things up. It can be linked to things that are more financially inclusive than the banking system. So actually you can have more financial inclusion, less hacking, and it's also cheaper. And now as they've overcome the technical obstacles to blockchain clearing faster, it can be faster. So it can be faster, and there's even more. Okay, So it can be faster, more inclusive, less hackable. But now there's a fourth thing that you can do. The, the future of stablecoin transacting is going to be to staple to the message of the transaction some other messages. For example, my name is Cesare, uh, I'm more than 18 years old, and here's my payment to, to uh, bet on something in the casino.
0: or well, on university campus,
1: my age is 21. Right. So the point is, it's going to turn out that there's a fee-generating business called credible messaging that's going to be staple to this. That the Fed, is, the Fed is a 19th century centralized payment system. It shouldn't exist. right? But that's not the only reason the Fed wants to do this, to, to preserve its payment system power. It also wants to do it because once you create digital currency, you're one step closer to being able to have negative uh, interest rates, which is a fiscal policy. Explain that. Taxation. It's a tax. So if I have negative interest rates, all I'm telling you, that's a a polite way of saying, I'm taking your money. That's what a negative interest rate is. So I'm taking some of your money. Well, who gave you the right to take my money? You're not Congress. Well, I'm the central bank. It's digital currency. It's a new kind of freedom I'm giving you to give me your money. You're free to lose your money.
2: Don't you feel better? They also tax with inflation, isn't it? Isn't the same... It's
1: it's it's it can be effectively the same thing. But uh, the point is that inflation tax is a consequence. uh, You're right. It's a consequence of uh, having inflation, but it's not a specific um, action to actually tax your balances. And also the the incidence of the tax, it's voluntary if you don't want to hold the currency. You don't get taxed. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I guess that that's true in both cases, but it's a little bit more personal to say, you know, oh, well, these balances get taxed rather than anyone who happens to be uh, holding the currency. So, I think a central bank digital currency is a, a, a Trojan horse that central banks are likely to use for these two purposes: to in- expand their fiscal powers and to be able to create so- the illusion that they're providing a substitute to the thing they're trying to prevent. And there's no comparison. Stable coins more inclusive, faster, richer because they can combine with these other messages and less hackable. A better bilateral these bilateral networks actually will work better. So, um, so tell us how tell us how CBDCs get rid of stable coins. Well, it's it's really just that on the one hand, people people understand that there's this great you know possibility of better technologies and doing things with your wallet and your, you know, all that. And so I think that it's a kind of PR thing where you say, oh, yeah, well, we're on the side, and I'm predicting the Fed is, they haven't come out very explicitly, but I'm predicting the Fed is going to very much be on the side along with certain politicians in Washington and with the incumbent banks, which have formed a coalition on anti-fintech coalition and especially anti-stable coin coalition, that you're going to see them very much on the side of trying to be very restrictive of the development of stable coins, and then they'll hold out this fig leaf. Oh, but we're gonna create the central bank digital coins. Don't worry.
0: So it's not gonna be purely on competition. It's going to be on restrictions on what stablecoin issuers can
1: ultimately they're do. G- they're gonna to try to package it as, don't worry, even though we're restricting stable coins, we're providing something just as good, which of course is the opposite of the truth. But central bankers, as we know, make a habit of lying all the time.
0: So we have right now the presidential working group. So Joe Biden put together all the top regulators to talk about stable coins specifically. They've been talking about even in the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. we're expecting a report sometime this month, maybe, that's going to be the government's view on what regulators should do with respect to stable coins. And you believe that to be?
1: I think it's pretty predictable. You just saw the Biden administration nominate Professor Omarova for the head of the OCC, the fact that they would even consider nominating someone who's clearly not competent for that job. In fact, is there such a word as anti-competent? It's not just incompetent, it's anti-competent. It's like the opposite of the set of characteristics that you would like. Is it competency or beliefs? Well, whatever you want to call it. But if somebody believes that the Soviet system was a superior economic system to our system, (laughs) then I think that's not a very good start. For the person that you want to put in charge of regulating the banking system. So, um, you know, it's just a very weird thing, but I think it's entirely predictable, given the strength of the, And this is not something that's generally well known, so please, you know, everyone who's listening, take this to heart. Even a decade ago, you wouldn't say that the Democratic Party, the Federal Reserve Board, and the incumbent banks were part of a very strong political coalition. That's new, but it's very true. And so right now what's going on is that coalition wants to shut down fintech and wants to not empower fintech. And you can think, well, what do those three parties have in common that makes them anti-stablecoin and anti-fintech more generally? The incumbent banks don't want the competition. The Democratic Party is very worried about whether they can preserve what let's call the milking of the the banking system, especially through the Community Reinvestment Act, if they can preserve that with non-depository institutions, because the Community Reinvestment Act, which they use quite a bit and have been using since the 70s as amended throughout the 90s, the, the Clinton administration called it the third way to use the regulatory apparatus to accomplish physical transfers that they couldn't otherwise accomplish. And that was very important to the GSE Act, it happened uh, actually under the Bush administration, George, George H.W. Bush, but which the Clinton administration expanded and then also expanded uh, Community Reinvestment Act. So you have to understand the incumbent banks, the Democratic Party and the Federal Reserve that wants to preserve its control over the payment system have common interest in putting sand into the gears of fintech and stable coins especially. You will see that. It's not a coincidence that Omarova was nominated. It's not a coincidence that somebody who's very hostile to the future of finance. So
0: so let's go back. Uh, I was going to say that I want to go back to one last feature of stablecoin. And, you know, through history, competitive markets in the U.S. have tended to win. Even with antitrust or big companies, it always seems that the market gets it right. And going back to stablecoin, stablecoin can do something ultimately that— A CBDC can't, or probably a federal government wouldn't, Mm. and that is offer return or investments. Now, a stable coin that offered returns would be deemed a security, Mm. and there's some controversy now about how to register if it were. But if I had the choice between a CBDC and a tokenized money market uh, account that gave me 3% on the dollar bills in my wallet, uh, why would somebody, how would the How would the CBDC
1: win in that case? Well, Scott, that's exactly right. So the point is the CBDC can't win unless it prohibits the stable coins. That's my point.
0: So you you think the PWG is going to come out and say, uh, we can't have these uh, privately
1: issued stable coins? It it might not come out with an outright prohibition, but it will come out with uh, a set of regulations that will make this less viable than it would otherwise be. So... I'm, I'm sorry, I have to start with saying what I think the future of a, sta- a good stable coin would be. So, a good, a f- the f- It would offer returns, like you're saying, it would, um, but it would um, also offer additional services, like I said, messaging services, stapled to the payment service. It would offer this in the context of a stable coin. But suppose that um, the regulator came in and said, well, we're going to allow this. But only if, 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 right? And then you make those ifs, things that aren't part of the efficient way to actually design a stable coin. For, let me give one obvious example. Currently, stable coins that I'm familiar with are looking a lot like um, checking accounts in the sense that they are redeemable. As you, you go buy the stable coins, and then you can go back to the issuer of the stable coins to get your money back. I don't think that's the future of stablecoins. I think redemption is not necessary. You can design algorithms using secondary markets to stabilize the value and get rid of the run risk associated with that. And furthermore, by not making them debt instruments, but making them preferred stock, you get rid of the legal possibility of default, which also simplifies things. You can have algorithms that deal with very very unlikely bankruptcy scenarios to restructure right you can have all that happen then it will
2: not be a stable coin it will, like, no it, it would be a stable coin fluctuate is
1: it no because you can still i can still design an algorithm doing trading in the in the secondary market yeah to buy and sell to keep the value of the coin stable
2: sure but unless, as long as you have an over collateralized asset that backs it is
0: it
1: you I mean, don't need you don't abs- i mean you don't need to have uh, all i'm saying is that i can show you that if the suppose that the fees that you're getting from the messaging have a lower support of 10% of the of the stable coins that's the present value of the fees lower support can't possibly go below that well then you could dividend out 10% of the stable coins as reserves right you could you could pay that so my point is that's that's actually pretty viable and then you could still have enough with an algorithm to, and that could have uh, credit, lines of credit from other intermediaries to, to provide liquidity as needed against. So I'm just saying, let's use the tools of finance to think about the fact that this doesn't have to look like a debt instrument. It doesn't have to look like a redeemable debt instrument. And the reason that's so important, and I've been telling people in the industry this for some time, is these politicians and regulators are going to try to, to call stable coins deposits. You want to, in designing the the thing, you want to make sure it doesn't look anything like a deposit. Make it preferred stock and not redeemable. It's not a deposit. Why do they want to call it a deposit? If you're called a deposit, that means the Community Reinvestment Act applies to you. It means that the Federal Reserve Board has oversight over your holding company. And it means the FDIC is insuring you. All of a sudden, you're completely covered by the apparatus of this tripartite coalition. But if you structure stable value coins to deliver the same thing that people want, stable value, but you do it in the way I describe, and then maybe we should be chartering those as banks, too. Of course we should, because there are big advantages to being a national bank in terms of only one license, uh, great examination that makes your business plan credible, your algorithms can be examined and be shown to be credible, so the, the future of, of banking is to bring these these kinds of entities out of the shadows, if they want to be, and many do, into the chartered system, but make the chartered system flexible enough to accommodate them. But that coalition I described, the Federal Reserve, the incumbent banks, and the Democratic Party today, do not want any of that to happen.
2: So let, let's talk about this. The OCC came out about two years ago with this fintech charter, and then the state sued the, the OCC, and then it seems like... Now the, the the lawsuit is in limbo, and it's clear okay, what's so it, going to happen.
1: Because I was chief economist of the OCC, I have to correct you a little bit. Okay, yeah. So the OCC charter that was being applied in that case was no different from the standard bank charter. Okay. It was simply saying that you don't have to be... Um, Depositor. The, yeah, and let's remember that when the national banking system was created, deposits almost didn't even hardly exist. So national banks it was never a defining characteristic of national banks to have to issue deposits and and we even now have special we've had for some time trust banks and other kinds of specialized charters and we now also have a crypto sort of um, the um charter for the for the uh, custodial banks mm-hmm. so i just wanted to say yes there are some special charters but the one you're talking about was, was just just interpreting the fact that, of course, a national bank... It was
2: called fintech charter, but like... Right,
1: but that's just a loose term. It was not uh, a fintech charter. It was just the national bank charter.
2: But fintech company could apply. Exactly,
1: and we encouraged um, them to do that, to think, you know... And the business uh, plan advantage for them is largely the credibility that comes from the examination, Mm -hmm. which is real. I can can show you a lot of evidence that it's real and also the fact that you don't have to get licensed in, in different states. You have the National Bank. So uh, a lot of people- happened
2: to that, like,
1: Well, lasted. I would say the Democrats are against anything that, as I've already said, this coalition's very powerful. The Federal Reserve currently runs the U.S. Treasury. Janet Yellen and people she's brought in, if you haven't been paying attention, there's no longer a, dis- a difference between the Fed and the Treasury. Um, this, the Demo- There really isn't much of a difference. The Federal Reserve Banks are still not very politicized. The Federal Reserve Board has never been, I'm a historian of the Fed, has never been as partisan as it is right now. It's always been political, sometimes more than others. But right now, the Federal Reserve Board is basically an instrument of the Democratic Party. That's amazing to me to say that, but it's, it's true. Because this co- and the incumbent banks, if you haven't been noticing, have become also partisan. Notice what they've done on this carbon uh, lending stuff and other things. The, the, it's been an amazing change in the last decade. And I'm not saying this from a, a partisan perspective on my own. I'm just a historian telling you something has happened that has never happened before.
0: Can we? So, uh, yeah. Can we just unpack? You said a lot of things that I want to unpack. No. It.
1: And the first thing I want to
0: do is. Uh, what is the control of the currency? What is the OCC? What does it do and why
1: is it important? So, the OCC is perhaps the, the, one of the oldest federal, if not the oldest, federal government agencies established in 1863. And it has the same mission today as it had then. That's like a miracle. Can you even imagine that a government <coughs> agency has had no mission drift for 100 and almost 160 years? So what is the mission? It is to charter, uh, regulate, and supervise uh, national banks. Charter means you decide um, that this entity and these people are fit to do business. And you, you help them get organized and figure out that they are prudent in the way they're structured. Regulate means that you set the standards that they have to abide by. And supervise means that you're examining them. And finding them, whether they're in compliance, and if not, then uh, disciplining them in certain ways. Those are the goal. Those those are the things that were established for the OCC to do in 1863. Those are the only things the OCC still does. Um, it, it has always been, and, and uh, you know, going back to the history. Uh, They've had an uneven history. Sometimes they have great controllers who are great leaders, sometimes not, and they kind of are in the background. Nobody really notices that they exist. But they've historically had great history as being a credible source of discipline in the banking system. They haven't always gotten everything right, but politically they've been uh, less captured than the Fed by the big banks. Um, they're a source of discipline and honest conversation.
0: So what's the division of labor? I think if you ask the average person in the street who regulates banks, they'd say the Fed, right? And so what, what is the division of labor between the OCC and the Fed in terms of... And don't banks? forget
1: the FDIC. And so, the FDIC. So they're really, um, they have, um, each of them is a primary regulator of a different kind of bank. So, and, and banks are also often located within bank holding companies. So everyone who's not a, a nutcase like me about... Following banking has just like they've just gone to sleep, right? Like, just what are you talking about? <laughs> so, banks are the chartered entity. Banks are owned often by bank holding companies. Bank holding companies are regulated by the Federal Reserve Board, not the Federal Reserve Banks. the, the, the national banks that are members of the are all members of the Federal Reserve too. The national banks, not the bank holding companies, are regulated by the OCC. So, Citibank is regulated by the OCC. Citigroup is regulated by the Federal Reserve Board. If you're not a national bank, if you're chartered by a state, but you're a member of the Fed, your primary regulator, federal regulator, is the Federal Reserve Bank, like the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis or the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And if you are uh, not a member of the Federal Reserve System, and you're chartered by the state. Your primary federal regulator is the FDIC because you still, as of 1933, are forced to get so the. So the
0: OCC regulates the bank, issues the charter, and the holding company has broker dealers and all sorts of other things that sit inside of it. And so the Fed looks holistically at right. all the things, and the
1: OCC just the bank. And that's correct. And so the OCC, but it's not that the OCC doesn't also look at the holding company because we do. So we're looking, uh, if it's relevant, it does. But it's the question of specialization and and who is regulating the holding company. The Fed has authority to regulate the holding company. The OCC might still have an opinion about what your practice is with respect to the holding company, but the regulatory authority is over the bank. So, but but there's an important, forget all that stuff for a minute. There's an important practical change, which was what Dodd-Frank did was, by giving so much more, authority and mandate to the Federal Reserve. It it caused the Fed to become a much bigger supervisory uh, agency than what it had been. So just count up the number of people who've been hired to do the supervisory function. So to me, anyway, the threat is the OCC is becoming, relatively speaking, less and less important. Um, It still maintains uniquely the role of rechartering which in this fintech space is extremely important. But that's up for play. Politics, I think the politics right now, the fact that they nominated Omarova to be the OCC com, you know, comptroller speaks very loudly about wanting to shut down Jeez. this progressive and independent voice. Uh, and to, this, the, the OCC also has a personal interest in, in keeping, in chartering banks, wanting to charter more banks, because we are funded. I shouldn't say we, I'm no longer there, but the OCC is funded by the fees from the member banks.
0: So let's talk about that for a second. So, so it,
1: it was, it, it has a sort of, you've got somebody in the mix who actually wants the banking system to progress, to be futuristic, to to evolve in a good way, because they actually benefit directly from having more regulated they, they, The benefits.
0: classical OCC charter bank has a balance sheet. There are loans and deposits, assets and liabilities, and that's what we classically think of banks. They supervise those. And then Cesare started off the question of what about this fintech charter? And it was, I guess, just named so. Mm-hmm. But how do we think about
1: regulating a, fin- a fintech? Do they have a balance sheet? Okay, so this is a, that's a great question. So what, what are these fintech non-banks or shadow banks or some people? So if they became national banks, what would be different about them? There are two aspects that are very different one of them is they tend to have very skinny balance sheets so they're earning a lot of cash flows and they're they're using markets to manage the actual asset once they've originated it or it, or they or and then the second aspect of fintechs is they're unbundled they tend to do either payment stuff or lending not both so think about all the fintech firms you know how many of them are either lending firms Or payments oriented firms? And the answer is pretty much all of them. Unlike the traditional bank, which is doing both. Square. So, and. Square does
2: payment and also they do And they're going to. They're doing merchant lending. Right.
1: And so there's going to be. Partly because uh, the the charter might encourage them to branch out a little. There is some selective bundling. But roughly speaking, they're very different business models from traditional banks because they're doing one side or the other, and they're doing it with very little balance sheets. Okay, so it's not hard to figure out how to do prudential regulation coming from finance because finance knows how to think about how much leverage is unsafe. You tell me what forecasted default risk you want. Oh, I want kind of a, a triple B minus, at least. That's like about like 1% to 2% chance of default over a two- to three-year period. You tell me that's the level of risk. Oh, no, I want it even stricter. I want single A minus. You know, that's more like less than 1% risk. You tell me what you want, and I can tell you, based on an analysis of the business of that they're in using financial tools, either coming from the Black-Scholes-Merton contingent claims analysis or coming from simulation of cash flows or using regression analysis based on characteristics of the firm compared to other firms, all of those things are, are, are things that when I was at the OCC that we did. Why? Because we wanted to answer the question that you asked. Like, what can you do? So if you start with a traditional... Get, tell me wh- how much of your tangible assets, oh eight percent of your tangible assets must be held that that's like gets you nowhere because they don't hold tangible assets on their balance sheet, so you have to think about uh, risk in order to set capital requirements the, the which we should have needed. been doing for all the for the for the traditional banks so so the good news is this is going to help us learn, teach the regulators how to think better about finance and about how to set leverage restrictions.
2: But the shadow banking model and the risk associated with that model is very different from a bank. And so the regulator have to learn a new business model. So it's more
1: about rollover risk. So yes and no. So but I would say that... The, the
2: leverage is much lower than traditional banks. For the most part because true, they cannot afford yeah. to have a 95% leverage.
1: Well, they're not. If they're not holding, so you have to redefine leverage. What do you mean? If if I don't have a balance sheet, um, then my leverage seems very high. But if I that's if that could be just because I have a lot of intangible assets. Mm-hmm right? So I have fee generating. So if I have any debt, you might say, my goodness, your leverage is 800%. I'd say, well, no, look at it relative to my revenue. Look at debt service relative to my revenue. And then let's do a simulation of the risk of the cash flows. And then all of a sudden you become very comfortable.
2: Yeah. I'm just saying that it's a very different way of regulating.
1: It is. But, you know, when I said that to my colleagues at the OCC who were in supervision, they pushed back and they said, you're wrong. We have been dealing with intangible assets as part of what banks do and evaluating those risks and using them, f- f- using them to, from a supervisory discretion standpoint to think about risk for a long time. But they haven't been doing it as part of the capital standards. Right, and and they haven't been doing it in a way that I would say is consistent and accountable. Whereas, if you're setting capital standards for fintechs, you have to have accountability, and it has to have consistency across business models. So, if you translate everything into what's the you know using either the Black Scholes Merton framework or regression framework or a cash flow simulation framework, and those are the only three that I can think of. You can come up with consistent approaches for saying, given what we know about your financial institution, even though its business model is very different from the other fintechs, here you should have a 12 percent. Uh, you should have 12 percent uh, t- of your debt in in equity. You should have 10 percent. You but, should have nine percent.
2: But my view, like especially for shadow banking, their leverage is much lower. So I don't think the issue is about. The so right their risk the is not sheet. lower. The if, modal is yeah. the left hand side. The question is like. Uh, you know, but their risk is systemic risk. You know, it's. Uh,
1: yeah. But actually, their risk. So the the modal um, credit default risk of a shadow bank is more like double B. Okay. That's the modal one. So you you actually do have to tell them. This was. I wasn't, oh, you know, I love markets, but I also think that you have to actually regulate capital. And so if they're coming, my view, and I'm not saying this is the OCC's view, I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying this is my view. If you're coming from a shadow bank to be a chartered OCC institution, I would even go for triple B plus as the standard. And most of them are coming from a double B. So they have made the choice when they weren't. Uh, chartered institutions to actually target a fairly aggressive default risk, so, so we need to actually impose some regulatory standards on them.
0: So I feel like I have to, as a former market regulator, say that it's not called shadow banking anymore; it's non-bank financial intermediation. <laughs> uh, but setting that aside, when we think about regulating a fintech, um, my 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 thought on bank regulation, my not very you know. Uh, neophyte thought, is that you only have two risks. You have capital adequacy, but you also have liquidity risk, right? So you have to manage yes. liquidity. Bear Stearns, you might say, well, they had sufficient capital, but they didn't have liquidity, and maybe that's why they run wound. I don't know if that's a fair statement so or not.
1: I, I think you're, uh, you're right that liquidity is part of the, the regulation, but I just want to emphasize we shouldn't think of liquidity as a separate risk from solvency risk. Liquidity risk, in my opinion, is a magnifier. That is, banks don't get into illiquid situations because they're in great shape financially. They get into illiquid situations because things start going wrong for them. And then people start being nervous. And then they don't want to roll over the debt. And then the question is, where's your, where are you from a liquidity standpoint? So th- this is, I think, one of the great lessons of all of the history of financial crises, that liquidity risk is not an additive risk. It's a multiplicative risk of, of insolvency risk. So that's Yes, there should be liquidity standards. But, but, but a
0: healthy bank, I'm assuming a healthy bank could fail with enough stress in the system. Mm-hmm. And so they could have you know, adequate capital, but you know, the financial crisis hits if, if there's no government support. I mean, couldn't they
1: all in the fire cell be... So, I would say not. I, I'm going to be uh, uh, bold and say no. Um, let, let me remind you that when TARP was being devised, J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo didn't want to participate. They didn't need it. They didn't want it. They were forced, forced by our government to participate in it.
0: Is that true? Did they not want to participate, or did they want to be told to do it?
1: No, they didn't want to participate. Uh, I can show you a videotape interview of the then-CEO of Wells Fargo bitterly complaining after the fact and when he was no longer the CEO of Wells Fargo about being forced. So, yes, they were forced. Why? Because our Secretary of the Treasury had a very primitive and I would say illogical sort of convoy mentality that he thought somehow the market would be fooled. The market didn't understand that Citibank was virtually insolvent. The Bank of America was close to being virtually insolvent. And that J.P. Morgan and Wells were nowhere near that. And that he thought that somehow by having them all do the same thing, that somehow he'd create a positive impression or equal impression. That kind of kindergarten thinking is like just ridiculous. But yes, it, it was part of the story.
0: But that era, I mean, the market was fooled in a large, like with residential mortgage-backed securities, mm-hmm. there was a lot of opacity, a lot of under, misunderstanding. So in the context of what had just happened, Was that an unrealistic uh, view to have?
1: It was an unrealistic view, because if you looked at just the way the market was pricing the equity of these banks, the market knew, uh, like, take Citigroup's um, market-to-book equity ratio for the last 12 years has been, you know, half of J.P. Morgan Chase's. The market has known the difference between these institutions all along. There's no, you don't. So, so... I, I think it it really is true that if you were are in great shape from a solvency standpoint, you don't face a liquidity crisis pretty much
2: so so we have a uh, five hour minutes before we have to yeah. finish. Uh, so there was this recent news like two days ago that Google decided not to actually continue uh, with the idea of offering bank services uh, and uh, and so my question to you mm-hmm. is. If Google cannot enter into the financial banking sector, like, do we have any hope
1: to improve the competition in, mm. in, in, in so, the industry? So it's a great question. I mean, remember, Walmart has been trying to do it yeah. for a long time, too. And so the banks are most threatened, most threatened, the incumbents. By the tech people. By yeah, right? the tech people, yeah. because they have the network. Correct. Right? And so they have the entry to the relationship. Correct. Is and there so any they hope ne- for us? So... Um, so you're I mean, an
0: us, you're part of the fintech? Us, me. He knows people. the future, the people. future. Look, <laughs> fintech, the future. It,
1: it really needs to be emphasized that from a standpoint of inclusion, there's, you know, 20-some percent of the American public has no bank account. They, they might be connected to Google. They might right. be connected to uh, uh, Walmart. Yeah. They might, right. So you want to, from a financial inclusion standpoint, this is very important, but the incumbents are very powerful. This coalition right now of the incumbents, the Federal Reserve Board, and the Democratic Party, I'm sure they're against uh, letting these, uh, these, these big players come in and disrupt well, you, their work. You world. know
2: why Google said that they were not going to do it? Because Google has a, a cloud computing business mm-hmm. that they wanted to grow. And most of the customers of this cloud computing c- c- division is, uh, are banks. Right. And so they were not happy that Google were actually offering cloud services to them and right. also trying to compete with them. Well,
1: Facebook, I think, is still quite sincere about moving in this direction. I haven't heard them backing off yet. With DiEM. With DiEM. And, and so I talked to their economist who was kind of in charge of planning this at some point, and we we had a very, it was interesting, I won't quote him, but just to say we had a very long conversation where our views of where the future were headed were quite similar, so I, I, th- I think there are some very thoughtful people, or at least people who agree with me, uh, who are which the makes ones them who thoughtful. don't are unthoughtful. I mean, I've been teaching
2: know? fintech for five years, and I always say, "Oh, you know, the, the tech company are gonna are gonna come in, are gonna come in," but I haven't seen any evidence. Yeah, and Amazon mean, is is moving very very slowly. It, it, I mean, uh, they Microsoft know. is not really doing much. And, and here's Google the most important
1: that. thing to say about this: you cannot do this if the government doesn't let you. The government can stop it. Look at what the Chinese are doing. Mm -hmm. Our government can stop this. Don't think that somehow you're immune, you can operate in some cloud, right? No, you are still physically linked. You're You're a physical being in a physical place. They can stop it. And so we need to all wake up and realize that the big coalition right now that's against this is powerful. And if we just all sleep through it, they, we're, we're not going to get the future that we deserve.
0: So let's, let's talk about hope for a second. Uh, we have multiple regulators, and I'm wondering whether or not we can have innovation in government with competition between regulators uh, trying to innovate. So, for example, you talked about the OCC trying to regulate fintech. Can the OCC be a regulatory competitor and try to innovate and, as you said, get membership, increase their mm-hmm. membership, by uh, allowing uh, tech companies to come in, in the future. Absolutely. I,
1: I, it, it's It's been demonstrated. The, the interest is there to apply for the charter. It, it's going to be done, to the extent it will be done, within the reputational sort of confines of the OCC. S- with stability, financial stability, paramount, there isn't any competition race to the bottom going on here. The, the point is that The OCC is... That was going to be my next question, but... (laughs) No, there isn't, because the point is, we're we're not... The OCC is the entity that uh, has the ability to create a national charter. None of the states can do that. And that puts it in in a great position. It also has a great reputation for credible examination that none of the state licensing bureaus has. So, you know, the OCC can do this. It has the advantage of there's no race to the bottom. It can create the gold standard for credible algorithms, for credible uh, good business modeling, good risk management. And that's the way it will do it if, if it's allowed to. But the key question is the OCC is still part of the administration. It's still part of the Washington apparatus. It's not independent. And so that's the problem. What's my prediction? This is going to be put on hold at least for the foreseeable future. This coalition is very powerful, and they're against it.
0: Great. Well, Charles, it's been a wonderful to have you on with us for the past hour, and uh, thank you for all the enlightening comments. Well, I hope
1: I managed to say yeah. something a little controversial.
0: Oh, I think you managed to do that. <laughs> Thanks. 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 It was a
1: pleasure.